Welcome to Behind the White Scarves. Okay, so a good portion of Stonespring is an introduction to autumn and expanding upon the details of this setting. And to be honest, we did actually touch upon this question a bit earlier in the conversation. But I mentioned in our initial reactions to the book how I've struggled with certain novels that feel like nothing but world building. As I'm sure you and our listeners are aware of by now, I didn't have that problem with this book. So... What was your approach with the segments of the story that slow down to talk about the aspects of Autumn and the Elaine? Like, how did you strive to keep those parts engaging and make sure it didn't just sound like a setting textbook? Well, weirdly, uh, it was kind of the other way around. Uh, Mm. We worked out, uh, and um, there's a question about this later, I'm sure, uh, Victoria Grieve and uh, Sharon yes. and Theo definitely helped as well. Uh, a history for autumn, just the the key moments, omitting clearly many many centuries worth of of going back and forth and power struggles, but um, a, a lot of things had happened, and I knew that in the present day, different characters would have different feelings about that about each section uh, of important stuff that I'd mapped out. There's plenty of stuff that I never mentioned at all in the in, mm. in this book at the moment. Uh, but I use the history of Autumn to inform on the characters and at the same time achieve an information dump. So, uh, you know, mm. you, I could just take that stuff out, but it would still just be characters talking about things that are happening right now and how they felt. So mm. it like either way, it would be talking about the world either then or now but the primary function is always to reveal character to reveal perspective from that person whether you find it objectionable or you think them naive or you think them overly aggressive or you think them uh dismissive uh it it allows you to see their weaknesses and occasionally it allows you to fall in love with them when you just start to really grab hold of their strengths it also occurs to me that it helps to have Stone Spring Maidens have the whole theme of two worlds meeting, mm. because as opposed to having a story take place entirely in a new world that you have to explain a little bit, there's no, as you know, moments mm. in the theme, because Penny gets to explain these things, or Atar and Ganny get to explain these things mm. to Harry, who is an established character that we can follow and have investiture in but who doesn't know all the intricate details about the society and color theory and (laughs) my one of my favorite moments of feedback that i've ever given you alex because i knew it would piss you off was when i said (laughs) you know what this really reminds me of that bit of thor the dark world Um, honestly, the other thing is it works the other way around in that regard as well. I created a world that Harry would fall in love with. I, I made something that I mm. knew she'd love to hear about and be wrapped and, and totally attentive because mm. if Harry's enthusiastically listening, then we, the audience, are like, okay, cool, right. Mm. So you're going to stay, right, Harry? Mm. It, Enthusiasm's actually- infectious. Yeah. yeah, thinking about that, because I was going to say part of the benefit of it being Harry's eyes that we get to see all this through is that because she is a uh, an analytical and observant character, and we already know that, yeah. she absorbs things and takes them on board very quickly, and we also get to see her take on her new surroundings. And like you said, because this world is one that is completely... It feels very natural to her. Mm. She fits in very quickly. And it did make Mm. me think, what if we had other new century characters in autumn going, (laughs) this is just all wrong. And (laughs) that doesn't work. And Abigail being totally frustrated by the fact that nobody has Wendigo guards posted on all the roofs or anything (laughs) like that. You wouldn't be pissed off at that. I think Abigail would be like, okay, so y'all treat men like this and... Everybody's okay with that. 
That was um, something that but, occurred to me. That, yeah, because yeah, Harry is the perfect protagonist of this book because she sees the world around her and she's very inquiring. Even if it's not outwardly, she will take on this information and really process and reflect on what she's seeing. And I was trying to think of, huh, I wonder how other new century protagonists would get along <laughs> in that. And then I realised, oh shit, they're all like that. <laughs> They are. I have a type. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the um, the idea of it being Harry and like, imagine if we'd only just met Harry and, and I'd have to sort of carve her character out. We can kind mm. of find Harry in this story by what she's not, like what she was before seems to have gone and we feel really unbalanced. So we not only want her to get to autumn as soon as possible so that we can bring Harry back, but also because it just feels like there's so many things in there that she'll benefit from. But it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of torturous making your way there to begin with. And the original version of the book, again, you're going to um, probably ask me about this later, mm. but um, mm. the original version of the book, I slalomed. Every chapter had a bit of Harry and a bit of Penny. And it was just, it just eventually became, here's your sugar and here's your medicine. Mm. And it just felt almost like I was placating the audience with Penny as opposed to getting them really invested in this world. So I changed it around and had it be just this dose of bittersweetness because if you just get penny then you also work out the things that are really holding her back and the things that are really upsetting her so it felt actually more consistent that way Mm. honestly for me and this isn't a detraction at all the entire first act of stone spring maidens was difficult for me because mm-hmm. I could see very clearly Harry is the obvious one suffering because she is broken in multiple ways that she is trying to come back from, and the world around her is not helping with that. Mm-hmm. But Penny is just as wounded by being in a world where she cannot entirely be herself. So there's just as much pain on both sides. So when we finally get around to that first chapter where Harry meets Penny, and we see the spark, the the light in my eyes going, oh yes, finally. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're actually on that subject, I might skim ahead. The first act of Stone Spring Maidens, as you say, it underwent a reordering after you received some reader feedback and reflected on what you wanted to prioritise with the opening chapters of this story. And that's not the first time that you've rearranged chapter placements in order to improve the flow of one of your books or incorporated chapters that were perhaps meant for a different book, but you put them there. Secret Room says thank you, by the way. But this was never done as close to the original release before. And I was wondering if this was this a decision that you were able to make because you were still in the early stages of the audio dramas release? And if you were further along, would you have waited for a quote-unquote definitive edition further down the line before incorporating these changes? Strictly speaking, I probably should have waited till the whole story was played out and then reordered the whole thing so that Mm -hmm. the initial listeners had already caught it. I was hoping to gather a lot more listeners as we went along. I always hope for that. And I wanted them to be able to start with the best way of listening to the story. So people jumping aboard for the first time would be like, oh, okay, so cool. Now that this Mm -hmm. has been mentioned by this trendsetter, this tastemaker, suddenly the audience is going up and they're going into a much better paced book. As it was, I probably actually lost some of my audience. So it's inadvisable, but... Ultimately, I prefer the idea of getting it done sooner rather than later, just like ripping off a Band-Aid. And mm. uh, just get, like if I can see the edits strongly in my head, do it now rather than waiting. Mm. Because if the longer you leave it, the more strange it'll be for people to suddenly experience it in a completely mm. different order. Do you regret that some of the scenes which were originally written as introductions to certain characters no longer serve that role? Or were you surprised by how well other scenes worked as the new introduction to them? The ones I have in mind are with Penny and Ganny and Lamia. Lamia. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I've just thought of an equivalent, actually. Do you, uh, if you've listened to our Shining episode, Kubrick 
they put out a version of The Shining in theatres and then Kubrick went back to the editing uh, board and ripped like hmm. 17 minutes out of the uh, film. So there's whole chunks of it that a lot of people have never seen because most DVDs and VHS versions are just the theatrical yeah. cut. But the longer, I think it was the European cut or something like that, that's the one where uh, like I, I, I saw in the cinema things that I'd never seen in The Shining before. Plus, there's that whole thing about he purposefully shot it in Academy because he did not trust TV to not butcher his frame. But in the years since his death, everything's gone full widescreen. His paranoia is now not founded upon anything. So now his films are presented in contentious sometimes among Kubrick purists. Uh, you know, full widescreen uh, aspect ratio, showing us bits of the screen that he maybe never intended us to see. But I love the idea that a body of work is not done at release. Mm. I love the idea of retaining versions as we go so that you can mm. actually go, you know what? Could I check out the earlier version of this? I've kept those early chapters if you want to read them. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's and if you remember, I actually put out uh, Secret Rooms, the original edition, just in paperback form for people who just really want the version without those nine extra chapters. Just a matter of principle, uh, <laughs> the way, just because I've bitched I, and bitched about George Lucas never releasing the uh, theatrical editions in some kind of beautiful format. And it's like I, I kind of have to march to the beat of my own drum on that one. I do think also work in progress is something that it's really important for other creators, particularly young creators, to see. Because it's easy to convince yourself when you're just starting out in any creative field that the people at the top of that field are able to produce this magical work fully formed from Zeus's forehead. It doesn't work that way. It takes blood, sweat and tears and rewriting and redrawing and reworking and here's the lines and here's the sketches. And mm. I think being able to see all of that early on in your interest in the arts is to be able to look at it and go, well, all right, I might not be able to do that fully formed thing, mm. but I could do that line drawing. And also, um, it's it's not new to the series. If you remember, what I did several books, just chapter by chapter, like a serial being written. You know, so I didn't know at all exactly how it was going to end at the beginning when I started publishing the first few episodes, and uh, like just little things got changed along the way. Like um, when Antonio finally drew Miguel. Um, I asked him to draw him with a little rosary and thought that is mm. a really nice prop. And then I went back and added the rosary to the uh, an earlier chapter that it wasn't there before and had Maureen just read through and mention there was he was wearing a little cross. And then he gives that to her later as a uh, a, a gift as a sorry you had to sell your bracelet. Mm. And it just it being able to go back and 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 give you Chekhov's rosary. Um, just it, it meant that Chekhov's people... got a lot of stuff. He <laughs> <laughs> does got a basement full of it. Uh, but it, 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 there were people who clearly hadn't gone back and re-listened to episode three any time before they got to episode nine. But in between those times, I seeded the rosary for new listeners and then paid it mm -hmm. off uh, later a few a few weeks later. This was a a grander scale version of that, but still, I don't mm. think as big as the definitive edition of Secret Rooms, which mm. obviously happened way after the fact. Also, on a much more granular level, back in the day when the way round that we used to do these was script, mm. then audio recordings, mm. then we would convert that final text to Into the, book, the yeah. novel. By the time we or got Princess to that Thieves. stage it would have been subject to change because when somebody records the speech, the vocal patterns might shift. Mm. Something that, that Alex had written on the page might change when Maureen said it because there was a different way round that made more sense. And so mm. what eventually ended up in the book, as close as we could get it, was what people had said in the audio recordings rather than necessarily what was in the original script. And then that changed a little bit when we started doing things the other way around and the books came first. I say this with all the respect and love in the world, but I it astounds me that Tiger's Eye and Arlington came out as cohesive and just 
Yeah. As if it, it should have been a game like... of consequences with myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I had some amazing people. Look, this is the thing. Honestly, I think I, I have to credit New Century to the team of unpaid beta readers who uh, effectively I get to field these ideas off and the amount of women I get to sort of show this is how I've written this woman is that okay mm. just to kind of feel it out and and get the approval mm. across the board because yeah. if I was just writing it on my own and thought oh that seems like it should be okay I'm just going to publish mm. that now <laughs> then I'd fall what... into all kinds of traps <laughs> you know what the creative process really is and to go back to what Sharon was saying earlier of it's not something that springs fully formed from Zeus's forehead. It's much more akin to Zagreus's journey in Hades, where you just keep on trying, you end up back where you started in a pool of your own blood and sweat. And <laughs> along the way, you'll encounter a bunch of other people who kind of like actually give you stuff that help you along your own journey. And eventually you'll get to the end and you'll think, you know what, I can probably do that better. Let's try that one more time, except I'll do this and maybe talk to that person I talked to last time. I want to play Hades now, thank you. <laughs> I, I really want to play Hades now. I, it's been on my mind. I also really like this story where you're willing to keep your earlier mm -hmm. stuff around for people to see. It makes me think of an episode of The West Wing. Penny in the jar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, where there's we specifically... now chime in every time we listen to uh, through the window, and we like we, we say it at about the same time as you guys do. We did it, Greg. We have a thing that they now say because of us. You've memeified it. <laughs> They're talking about having just lost the uh, lander Galileo Five, and mentioning about how they still want to do the broadcast to the children of America. We have at our disposal a captive audience of school children. Some of them don't go to the blackboard or raise their hand because they think they're going to be wrong. I think you should say to these kids, you think you get it wrong sometimes, you should come down here and see how the big boys do it. Mm. You know, show people that, you know, it's a, it's a process of, as, mm. <laughs> as Toby said a moment ago, blood, sweat, and tears. Mm. Uh, and you have something that you're happy with by the end of it. But it's a rocky road to get there sometimes. Mm. Mistakes are how we learn. I'm currently undergoing what I hope to be a ongoing creative process, which is that for half an hour each day, I sit down to write 500 words on just something. I guess it's a little like what you did a while back, Alex, the reviewer days. Mm. And it's definitely not something that goes through the refinement of that. But... It's been fun the last couple of days. I've put them out on, I think at the moment, it's just on my Facebook account, but I'm going to set up a new blog to sort of archive them. The first three have been on Midnight Mass, uh, Robin Robin, which is the Aldman uh, stop motion thing. And today was Matrix Reloaded. And oh, nice. it's... Uh, yeah, we. it's just been like an eclectic, this was something we watched today, or this was something I watched recent enough. And the impetus for it is that I've sort of fallen out of the habit with my writing, and I want to make it a habit. And does that mean that this stuff is good? Christ, no. It's <laughs> like, it's just practice. And that me. and I actually got like this comment with the best sort of intentions in the world. It's... Uh, uh, someone I know, but it's this sort of like, here's my feedback on the thing. And it's like, okay, with all the love in the world, I don't give a shit how this is. What you're seeing is my sketchbook, essentially. Mm. Like, I'm going to move on to the next one and kind of forget about this like tomorrow. I like the idea of making things. It can evolve, you can improve it, you can go back to it if you want. You absolutely can, but you're never really done improving your own work whether your own work is like new examples of what you did before or just like the practice as a whole that all makes a a portentous kind of sense because i've i've wondered what i'm going to do with myself if i do put a capper on new century and then years to come i'm twiddling my thumbs going Oh God, I want to go back to Rama, Autumn, these you know places that I, I was able to escape to during some of the darkest times. Mm. And 
it almost feels irresponsible to tear that back open if I've left it in a place that people can be at peace. Well, ultimately, the one who really has the starlit eyes that can open and close the windows at will is you, Alex. So, you know, we just peek in and we jot down notes. So that's a question we'll leave to you. That's for future Alex to worry about. Yeah, I mean, the present day Alex does not know the answer. So I'll wait until I am future Alex, who will then be present day Alex. <laughs> like you're going to have that Homer Simpson moment where you sort of look in the book and you just have the note that's like, I owe you one explanation of what I'm going to do with this series. Ah, oh, he's always one step ahead. <laughs> <laughs> there was a question in here about Luna Grieve, but I am going to get her here yeah. on a uh, White Scarves teen up by hook or by crook. So I'm going to save the question of how she contributed to Stone Spring Maidens for that interview. Good. I'm I'm going to send her that recording so that she can brush up and go, oh, that's what I said back then. <laughs> just so, so she's she's not, I don't know, it was years ago. I just gave them good advice on, on the trans experience and women's things. But uh, oh. no, it, um, it was a really kind of fascinating because like we approached it in that I had a lot of things planned out and... Mm. I was like, right, tell me a, maybe a better way of doing this. And mm. by and large, you were able to sort of refine and sort of like tweak it until it actually made something more beautiful and rich. It felt more like Autumn was alive that way. I'm curious, did you have any particular influences from LGBT romances in fantasy settings that informed on the development of this book? Or was there a lot of finding your own way with this story with the help of those you consulted with? One that I don't know if you would have seen it all the way through at the time when a lot of the sort of development of Stone Spring Maidens was happening is She-Ra, but mm. I'm curious, did that feed in at all? Uh, She-Ra definitely uh, played into it. Uh, a little of Gravity Falls, which mm -hmm. is a great show and you should definitely watch. Greg, um, <laughs> season two is magnificent. Yes, okay, but... I'm sorry. Season two is definitely on my list. Season two uh, is fantastic. Plus, it's on Disney Plus. It's so easy to see it's, in HD. Greg, if like, once you do, I a lot of my sense of humor will start to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Feeding him only the richest of cream. Um, <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, uh, and the we legend of Korra, the that, that of whipping show. boy that everyone always uh, uh, complained about while it was on and I thought was pretty much wonderful across the board, had a daring, satisfying ending, which now seems like just a tiny baby step towards helping a bunch of other shows to uh, push things forward. A little bit of Steven Universe, quite a bit of... And this was just for the team dynamic. I've mentioned this repeatedly, but Genlock. I am so glad I saw and didn't, didn't just see, but I was encouraged to see it and then cover it as a commission for School of Movies. And just elements of that really worked their way into the whole, like them all being armoured up and being uh, and effectively being the crystal punks at the end. Mm -hmm. That was like a like a, a Voltron stuff because they're doing Voltron and Gundam as well with Genlock but that was just it just felt like yes now suddenly they're together working as a team uh specifically the um the trans experience expressed in Genlock really helped me with several uh trans and non-binary characters that uh, I wrote in 2021 Question it's so difficult to <laughs> It's so the difficult. last five years have yeah. been a blur. <laughs> uh, we're looking at calendars right now to get for 2022. We've had the Legend of Zelda on our wall all year, and I'm like, I love this so much, but will it feel like no time is passing? We're just trapped in this temple of time going <laughs> forever. No, you know what it is. It's Majora's Mask. No, no, but it's a good place to get trapped, wouldn't you say? Mm. Like you could be in far worse places. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, and and like I said earlier, I wrote Harry like I'd write a boy, like a sensitive boy. It, it, it didn't really uh, make me. I I wasn't inclined to think how do I change this to make it gayer. Uh, it just it felt like how would I have been at this particular scenario if I'd. And I had to put myself in in Harry's, well, not shoes, but um, jeans repeatedly. There is a lot of me in that character. 
Mm. Wouldn't expect it, but it's there. She's so gentle, it's difficult to uh, to find where I am. One of the interesting things that occurred to me while we were having the earlier conversation on the romantic aspects is that this Stonestring Maidens is also one of the opportunities where we get to see a pairing where the two people involved are so very clearly kindred spirits because of their similarities mm. and not because of their differences making interesting sparks yeah like, i'm usually i'm like here's a duo and they're chalk and cheese <laughs> <laughs> now make them fight they love each other but they they just get on each other's wick all the time the closest to come to that was annie and butler but even they mm. clearly have differences to them yeah. um and obviously their relationship you know, th the point is they start out as a happy couple and then the pathos comes later mm -hmm. as development of Steamheart. So also, every time I hear you talk about consulting with various people on whatever it is, whether it's like, does this sound right for a woman to say? Does this sound right to be in a trans story? Mm -hmm. All I can do is keep coming back to that line, which is the endless gift giver from Arlington. Communication, son. It's going to be our salvation. Yeah. I mean, like, there's a reason why at the time I just said, oh, look, new century in a line. That, yeah, that, yeah. That's it. Yeah. So I guess we shall move on to the next question, uh, sure. which I shall borrow from Greg, which is why techno elves? Is it merely because of the crystal aesthetic? You could have chosen many different ways to make the Elaine either distinct or even just a human variant, but associating them with a familiar species feels like there is some intentionality behind it. Mm. Honestly, it was less to do with Tolkien's elves and more to do with anyone. Can, can anyone tell what the, the key elf... I what was elf thinking... elf is on your shelf? <laughs> <laughs> These elves are on my uh, shelves, I assure you. I hate it now. Um, <laughs> no. To be honest, the one that came to mind, even though they're not like ever really been described as such, but like I always see them as it is. There's aspects of the aesthetic that give me flashes of the way ancient technology is incorporated by the Hyrulians in mm. Breath of the Wild, but yeah. I don't know if that's what you're getting at. It wasn't necessarily what I was getting at, but playing Breath of the Wild in between this particular major influence and writing Stonespring definitely kind of shaped my feelings on on how this would uh, on just when penny talks about ruins that mm -hmm. was something profound i learned about myself while playing uh breath of the wild i, I didn't realize how much i loved ruins until mm -hmm. i played that and i was like and just the, accompanied with the um studio ghibli style you know quiet soft piano music mm -hmm. it just the elves are based on a feeling rather than oh. a, a, a specific cultural representation. The touchstone was the elves in Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Fuck, why didn't I get that? <laughs> I mean, like, I, when I originally had Penny drawn, I sent Antonio a load of drawings of Princess Nuala and said, mm. this, but a little bit more action-y. And just, um, we need to, and I pretty much designed, I love hearing Sharon's uh, say that she, was, who was it? Was it Sharon who said that she adored Penny's costume? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I want that. Exactly. That yeah. outfit. <laughs> I pretty much sketched it out uh, for Antonio and said, just make these feel like uh, uh, feathered bird's wings. We want a long leather glove, but fingerless for that like kind mm. of uh, extra steampunk thing. And she needs to have gems all going up it, but it needs to not look like the Infinity Gauntlet. And that flared collar to make her, that is like a flower right there. That she, she's sort of blossoming like so. And so all these green, like her boots, like with those all gorgeous sort of buckles and the, the high heels are like the stems and the roots. And sort of she's growing up from the ground in autumn. And then she's surrounded by this orange because she's the only shoot of green in something that's fading and just starting to settle. And the intensity of Prince Nuada, who absolutely in turn ended up in Mr. White, like that's his closest analog in cinema in this particular book. Mm -hmm. But he expressed, without us really meeting any of the other elves, the plight 
of the, mm. the this this very fragile race slowly and the fact that the elven king is just going to let it happen he's like maybe it's actually best for the world if we do recede and that's obviously very tolkien in its uh, its own way and just the idea that uh Nuada would be like no we got like which which species will survive at this point and it's this desperate struggle on his part and I sort of, I, I just sort of harnessed elements of both of that, and then set Nuada in opposition to the uh, elves for White's moments of desperate panic near the end. And yeah, yeah just that, that, if you remember the scene when Nuada kills his father, just those scattering, slow falling leaves. I just mm, thought mm, an entire world like that, that's still very much alive and growing very, very slowly with very old wood but in an organic way rather than a very masculine sort of utilitarian block, stick block. And then I just thought, you know, the interlacing fish scales and there's a a, a, fa a fairly frequent piscine motif to their buildings and their architecture. And I thought they'd be fascinated by fish because they don't really have oceans. They have great lakes, but fish are almost something that happens miles and miles and miles and miles away. And, you know, just to it would make mm. fish more kind of a fleeting beautiful thing almost like a mermaid just mm. that a, a sea creature on uh, in this sort of very land-based culture and then air-based they're very airy as well mm. and that, that sorry to interrupt so Shannon, i should get my very dumb joke out of the way and just say uh. that i've got the perfect gift if i'm ever going to awesome it's just one of those like singing salmon like yeah <laughs> I got you a big mouth Billy Bass. good i mean that that sort of thing we don't even just put that in the lounge that goes in the basement definitely <laughs> <laughs> but alex don't you think the elaine would appreciate the wonder of a mounted fish singing don't worry be happy don't worry be happy now Put it all the way down there <laughs> <laughs> i've picked out some awesome within the hour Sorry, sure. Sharon, please. Oh, and uh, there was yeah, no, go. Uh, the I think the the other element that makes elves the right fit for this world is it goes back to what Alex was saying about that acceptance of the uh, of being able to see their own end, or even if they can't see it clearly, to be very aware that it is coming. Because mm. and and Nuada's father is a, a prime example of that, but Tolkien's elves as well. There's something fading about them and because they are this sort of organic mythological element of a part of humans that are more connected with the land and more connected with the earth around them that being destroyed by the actions of humans or by just the passage of time as is happening in autumn fits with that sense of of them accepting that that's coming and i think part of what without wanting to turn this into a hellboy 2 the golden army analysis <laughs> part of what noada's father is trying to get across to his son and eventually has to let go of and and accept that he can't he won't see this is that if the land is dying underneath us and that's partly because of what the humans are doing even if we fight them, and even if we win, what do we win? What they've done to the land has already been done. Mm -hmm. The other I thing uh, was, that, and this actually uh, refers back to an earlier question of uh, how did I strive to keep the information dumps engaging? The fact that Theo was delivering so many of them definitely helps. I don't know how oh, yeah. well that works in the book, but hearing her voice just is utterly captivating. Uh, I wanted people to fall in love with Autumn itself. But yeah. just like with Wakanda, the thing I took the most from Wakanda was not the vibranium. It was the fact that in the Black Panther film, you're introduced to this amazing place. 
And then the film critiques Wakanda for how it managed to maintain being that amazing. Even before Harry's there, you start to see the cracks in autumn and realize that mm. people suffer to make it this wonderful and they don't need to. Yeah, because to me, that was always like I mentioned this earlier when I was studying like these ancient, like centuries old utopia texts and how it was just this book that was like, wouldn't it be good if everything was like this and then everyone agreed that it would be good? Mm, yes. <laughs> and Greg, like, basically just sort of imagine that particular OSP episode of Stranger in a Strange Land. That was basically like all of those books. It's time for more Deep Thoughts with Heinlein. Human society brainwashes us into accepting artificial limitations on our lives and our choices. This is wrong. Love should be free and without limit. Unless it's gay, of course. And that concludes our Deep Thoughts with Heinlein. You know, maybe like these authors weren't necessarily concerned with creating drama or anything of any engagement whatsoever, but it was nevertheless always fascinating to just think of like, what you propose sucks. Can we, can we have like someone like say this? Like, yeah. And they never did. And it's refreshing when someone proposes something that is actually like, you know, halfway decent and like to be completely fair and drop the jokes for a minute as time goes on, social expectations and just standards changes, which means that when someone from 300 years ago says, oh, wouldn't this be the height of achievement? I'm like, eh, not really. Yeah, as high uh, as a kite, Huxley, go home and sober up. Yeah. Your <laughs> own cotton gin. <laughs> <laughs> it's satisfying when you have this setting that feels inviting and then you get in there and you go, huh, yeah, no, that's not great. But because you care enough because there is enough of value there that got you in there in the first place you want it to improve you're that much more invested because it's like if it could only iron out these things it could be perfect mm. but there's enough there that moving beyond it requires work and it's not an instant immediate fix it took a long time for the MCU to actually critique Asgard. It was like, you know, you get introduced to it in the first Thor. It's like, Asgard, the shining jewel of... Of course I'd say that, I'm bloody Odin. And then the second one is like, this feels a little bit colonial. And then in the third one, Taika Waititi was able to say, without really going on about it, oh, yes, we'd done a colonialism. And that was probably a bad thing for Oops, the... Uh, all colonialism. The galaxy. But, mm. I mean, we're still... Like, Themyscira, when I was writing Autumn, I realized, oh my God, they've never actually critiqued it in the Wonder Woman movies or Justice League. It's just, well, this island's full of women and it's brilliant. And it's like, because mm. to critique them, Diana would have to say, well, I'm going off to the mainland and I'm going to help people while I'm there, as opposed to just but hiding away in your <laughs> island and taking no part in mankind. And you know, she should be the one admonishing them. But instead, she's told, if you go, you can't ever come back for arbitrary reasons. <laughs> I mean, you know, we don't have... you bring in COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> Change the life. Yeah. The moment you leave, you're not in our bubble anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> mask <laughs> up. Batman, that's the wrong kind of mask. <laughs> yeah, turn you're it, covering turn it the wrong down. part of yourself. I need my mouth free for that sort of thing. No, Batman doesn't do that. <laughs> DC has done some stuff with the Amazons, but mm. the stuff that I've heard has all been universally bad because there's always been something incredibly stupid like Amazon's attack mm. or an alternate universe version of the Amazons in one of those dark futures that somebody else comes out of. Days of Future Past style. Well, that's not critiquing Themyscira now. That's saying, what if the Amazons were evil? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's why, I, and I know I'm preaching to converted here, but like, this is why evil Superman stories are very dull to me because the question rarely actually engages with the initial premise, which is what would have to happen for this character to go down the start path? Because what it does is it makes Superman a psychopath. Yeah. And it just says, okay, he encounters this 
moment and makes this decision. It's like, well, it doesn't really feel like the character. So you're not asking me, what if this initial character was evil? You're asking, what if someone who had the exact same abilities as Superman was a dickhead? And it's like, well, what an intricate tapestry you've well, woven for me. That's the thing, because to make him a bad person what you're then creating is somebody with this power set mm. who wasn't raised by jonathan and martha kent or, at which point yeah. he's not clark kent or mm. you're the film brightburn where he was raised by jonathan and martha kent and still ends up who terrible. were loving and sweet and attentive and then he just snaps one day for no reason whatsoever other than the story mm. wanted an evil little superboy and you're like yeah. oh okay so and i guess then that that just happened and you know what this film that I don't think you guys have seen but does this quite positively is mm -hmm. a little thing called Civil War, like where they will get Captain America to be Captain America and ask what has to happen for this character to still be recognisably this person we know them as, but to be the source of conflict here and they manage to succeed at that because they never forget that initial conceit which is what if this character yeah. who we know like it's not john walker like it's not a that's what the if. point yeah it's not that's... A, a character swap it's yeah. not a disguise or hypnotism mm. the suit it's and the powers hip... are not the character and it's not exactly. an alternate reality where they're a prat for no reason thanks injustice <laughs> Before we move on, I wanted to add a couple of things on the subject of Themyscira, in regards to it being symbolically resonant with Autumn. I admit I don't have as comprehensive a knowledge of DC in comparison to Marvel, but just doing a quick bit of research reveals that certain iterations of the Hidden Island had not only old magic at their disposal, but also super tech like the healing Purple Ray. This definitely makes them more like the Elaine. More importantly, G. Willow Wilson of Ms. Marvel fame and a woman that I follow on Twitter named Stephanie Williams have been recent creative forces on Wonder Woman and Themyscira, which includes them doing some much-needed better writing and representation for the island, most recently with both black and trans Amazon stories. Most of what I know of Diana comes from Linkara, who often points out how Wonder Woman has been ill-served by male writers and editors since the days of Dr. Marston. So the presence of not only women writers, but also POC women writers of that part of the DC Universe, gives me hope for better stories and critiques for the Amazons. I've only seen Hellboy 2 twice, once see it three times. way back, <laughs> once way back when it, it first came out, and then again in preparation for your show. But the thing that came to mind for me when looking at the world of Autumn was specifically the campaign setting of Eberron from Dungeons & Dragons, mm -hmm. where they have all the traditional fantasy races, but they've kind of swapped up the different roles that each of them has in this world and they've also done an industrialization with magic which has crystals as being a significant part of it because they are the very good focuses of the magic that's already present in the setting or are repositories that allow them to have things like magically run trains mm -hmm. and everything like that now that you've mentioned outright that Golden Army plays heavily into Stone Spring Maidens, it brings a lot of other things into focus, yeah. such as thinking about the Golden Army in response to the Crystal Knights, oh. for example. And, mm. of course, it also makes me think a lot about uh, High Admiral Ruvenox and mm. her plans in regards to some of the stuff that Nuwata was up to. So, yeah... Mm. Um, <laughs> but we won't go far too far down that road. No, <laughs> you don't want to go down that road. Seriously, though, do, <laughs> do see it again. It's mm -hmm. uh, it's one of my favorite but... films of all time, and has absolutely been key in influencing me. Mm. All of Del Toro's work. Yeah, I mean, Hellboy Two is one of those films that you can't see enough times. Mm. Conversely, that more recent Hellboy film is one of those films you can't oh, see God. few enough times. <laughs> Have you seen it once? You, that's too many. You had to watch it for your show on it, so yeah. You Ugh. 
you know what? It might have been that film that um, stopped me writing reviews. I think that was like one of the last ones I did before I took a hiatus on that. It well. made me gave up on cinema. So, did you stop going to the cinema because of COVID? No. No, it was, it was the uh, 2019 Hellboy. Yikes. You've talked about how previous species introduced in New Century offer a variation of a familiar fantasy archetype. I believe you mentioned drawing inspiration from Warcraft's take mm-hmm. on some of these species in Princess Thieves. Mm-hmm. Were there any examples of fantasy species from other media? Oh, actually, hold on a second. This entire question, you've already yeah. answered this. this I actually was... wrote that down in my answer. I was like, oh, hey, this is rather like that other question. But no, it does allow me to, f- to go one more further, which is that uh, originally it was going to be a race that was uh, all female, but they weren't necessarily going to be elves. Mm. Then after I'd done the princess thieves, and I was like, right, this is my spin on dwarves. This is my spin on orcs. And they're never absolutely, totally spun around. But I was like, right, they're elves. But mostly they're run by women, which you don't normally tend to see in in elf hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, you're doing Pratchett's elves. oh, you're doing Pratchett's then. Okay, I have I've not uh, experienced enough Pratchett. Um, but they're also science nerds, which you don't really get much in uh, elf mm. stories. And then I was like, right. And then we can have like short, stocky, hairy little elves like uh, uh, Attar, who Orion very specifically was like, I would love to play Wolverine. I was like, well, let's make Attar a bit shorter and stockier and sturdier. and Canadian. And yeah. and, and <laughs> I want to hear Attar say color as well. Oh, the, the Dragon Prince is another big uh, influence on this, just oh, in terms yeah. of the fact that they had people of color in a fantasy setting. It never really gets mentioned in terms of, um, hmm. you know, this is remarkable. It's just, it's a really great way of doing inclusivity. Um, and similarly, Gany as well. It's another um, elf of colour. But, uh, you know, then we got this fucking Daily Mail reading elf. It's the uh, the woman who interviews Penny and just starts... Manfred Stokes, yes. Yes, mm-hmm. Blanche Manfred Stokes. And it's 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 very Rita Skeeter. I'm, I'm sorry to invoke that uh, woman. Yeah, Interestingly, right. the uh, the remastering of the Princess Thieves, I will be removing all. I, I made one mention of her in that. That's not going to be in the final version. So, uh, you know, hold on to that if you want. It'll be worth nothing in years to come. Um, <laughs> like speaking of Gravity Falls uh, jokes, just like take that Dipper seeing something. It's just a J.K. Rowling reference. It's like, whoa, this is worthless. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted her to feel like, um, who's that awful woman who, uh, Katie something or other? Oh, Katie Hopkins. Katie Hopkins. Just someone who sort of turns up. She's been very quiet lately. Makes the whole conversation about her. She's worse than Calendula. And just starts God, yes. spouting off bigotry in a way that makes everyone else in the entire room feel really uncomfortable. Like she's the equivalent, I suppose, of uh, Mayor Buck in that she just sort of spout all this shit off and then get huffy when anyone speaks up to her. Mm-hmm. But yeah, science nerd elves was just something that I, I thought, you know, like Penny is the kind of elf you don't normally get. And uh, frankly, Calendula is the kind of elf you don't normally get, you know, full of airs and graces. So I, I was like, uh, we'll do elves, but in a way that no one else has done them. If you had gone with your first inclination and to have an, a monogender that just happens to be female presenting species mm-hmm. that could have been an interesting take but you would have to handle that very carefully considering some of the unfortunate implications of say the asari in mass effect mm. they were all sexualized as women pretty much yes, across the exactly. border made all the worse by the fact that video games often don't have multiple models for character builds in games meaning that all Asari looks stereotypically physically perfect. It's the same phenomenon that gets you memes like Dr. Chakwas being a G-MILF, because even though her hair is fully grey by the third game, she still has a body as fit as Liara. I think the it, it's very important that Tawesha, one of their um, prophets and, uh, you know, a point of worship for them, mm. was non-binary but described by their followers as a uh, a perf- an ideal balance between mm. masculine and feminine energies mm. just to illustrate to us that it really kind of doesn't matter just it wasn't so much about attaining that perfection mm. as understanding that the differences we see in each other aren't all that different yeah. 
It's it's I, recognizing the spectrum of feminine and masculine and where they blend yeah. and ov- overlap mm. in the middle can flow through anybody. Yeah. Also, um, you know, it's much like Maiden, Mother and Crone. There are the symbolic uh, trio of the uh, father, the mother and the star child. And I thought Tawesha, if they were played by anyone, it would be Bowie. Oh, uh, yeah. I would actually like to take this moment because I don't know if I've set this down to audio anywhere, but I'm sorry I don't have their name to hand, but the voice actor who plays Penny's father... Ashdeep Singh Vora, who plays Emmett Clemence. I love his voice. I love the way that he reads the opening, and Mm. when he discusses Tawesha, it just... He turns in this soothing performance that you dearly miss at, like immediately, which yeah. I think was perfect for it. And you know what? Actually, I do have one question because I think it came up in either the final episode of Stone Spring Mains or the penultimate one. We hear him again. He comes to narrate just a small segment of the mm. audio chapter there. And I hate to commit the cardinal sin of any interviewer and say, explain the meaning here, but... Uh, would you care to explain the meaning here? Uh, it wasn't so much an intentional meaning as written, but while I was narrating that sequence for, because because I did all my narrations week to week, so it, mm. like when you heard the episode, I'd pretty much done the reading for that in the previous days beforehand, so that stuff wasn't recorded before time at Mm. least not particularly long before time. But I got into a rhythm and I realised I was kind of matching his prologue, which I very specifically went after the cadence of the intro to Pan's Labyrinth for. This is a very Del Toro-inspired I I heard that background music. I knew Mm. exactly where it was just... mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, And uh, originally the book was going to be written all like that. It was going to be a dark fairy tale that actually had very uh, florid language. And... Uh, and I realized soon enough that because of the colloquial way that Ganny and Penny spoke in a way that made us really care about them both, that wouldn't really fit with the dark fairy tale. Uh, like it would it would work that way for maybe a chapter or two, but eventually it would start to grate as everybody's speaking in a more modern fashion. The, it would work only if the narration was sparse and every so often not mm-hmm. taking up a large portion of describing events. There's certainly the implication that the way the Elaine language mm. sounds untranslated by the lip shell does yeah. sort of tap into that energy. It's, uh, I, I, yeah, I described it as being sounding like music. So, yeah, I, I found I was doing Akshdeep's um, performance and I sent him a passage and said, I, I did not expect to ask you to do more for this book. And he was so helpful and, and uh, ready to go. But could you just do, just just read this bit? And we'll just come back to you as a kind of a bookend in the way yeah. that he, you brought us into the story. And now you're the one who I specifically chose the lines that were like Penny and Harry were there together with each other. And it was mm. just kind of sealing that bond and just going, it's OK. It's going to be OK for these yeah. two for the, the time being. The closing of the fairy tale as well. It's It's like an audio version mm. of when disney do the book opening at the start of the story and then closing yes. at the end yeah. and this is where i find out once more that the planned episode is shorter than expected because we went on for seven minutes after we decided to stop the interview for the day we'll have a bit of that for you after the jump because again it's good content but to close us out i'm going to steal a page from alex's book instead of doing a song Let's do a small piece from Hellboy to the Golden Army before getting into juicy outtakes. This is a snippet from the Danny Elfman piece, The Last Elemental.
<laughs> our brains are maybe our worst enemies. I think that's possibly why Marvel are onto something regarding that their, their better villains are in fact the heroes themselves. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it's much more relatable that way. Like fucking General Zod, who can relate to that? I'll I've... find him! <laughs> I mean, as compelling as the nemesis is, it's not necessarily something that, that mm. a lot of us tend to have in life. We don't have that rainy fight in the middle of a stormy night where you're <laughs> fighting Mr. to the Mr. Jungius, <laughs> we missed you. Ah, I hope it's not my nemesis. That guy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but that's there's also a grand tradition we grew up on people that just went full bore chewing the scenery we have a certain fondness for that kind of enemy as well hmm. even if the more modern take on it because the more modern take doesn't always work either we saw hmm. what happened when eric killmonger worked and thanos like the whole thing with thanos went on to be like they specifically pushed that button in Hawkeye. And point of fact, they didn't just do it once, they did it twice. Oh yeah, I guess spoilers for Hawkeye, not really, it's not plot relevant, but just in case you haven't watched it, you don't want to risk being spoiled, jump forward about three minutes. I'm sure that the two of you noticed, but in the most Yeah, you were going on about that mug, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> See, I was going to reply somewhat facetiously, uh, but I wasn't sure whether the, I was the same woman you were talking about. Are we talking about Vera Farmigia? I'm not yeah. sure what lady we're talking about. The you house... said uh, um, Kate's aunt had a cup with uh, Thanos was right on it. Well, so, well, yeah. Well, so they're in. Wait, what? Like, the... there's a mug of that in Hawkeye. I'm very behind the MCU stuff. Yeah, there's it... a mug that says that in the show. Are it's written on a kidding? urinal as well, or so. Okay. Yeah. That, that All right. Was... So that's probably what they think of that. Okay. That... <laughs> well, they, so yeah, they had it as a throwaway moment early in episode one mm. and then at the safe house that it apparently belongs to kate's aunt when clint goes back there and he's like you know mm. drinking coffee or tea or whatever it is there's a moment when he brings it to his lips and it's not full on and you can see a purple background with white letters that if you look at it you can you can see it says thanos was right ah. i was like Ah, uh, okay, so they just put that in as an Easter egg. That's not actually meant to be serious. I'm thinking Kate's aunt's really into Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> but then, just to be sure that we actually saw it, there's a moment leading right up to when he gets on the phone with his son and he can't hear, full-on facing the camera in that in those shots that this director apparently really likes these full face on shots that Nando V movies talked about where you can actually see the full text of it. It's not like to the side or anything. Mm. And if you're paying attention, it's hard not to, when it's close <laughs> to the shot, you can see that that's what the mug says. So honestly, I feel like that would be a good setup for in the penultimate episode when Kate and Clint uh, f have a real falling out and uh, Clint's just storming around, like trying to hold it in, then sees this mug with Thanos was right and fucking chucks it at a wall. But mm. maybe like chucks it through a window at something with perfect <laughs> pinpoint accuracy when just like well, in absolute yeah. disgust. I mean, what I was going to say is that I refuse to believe that in like Clint's household Chekhov's that <laughs> mug. mug. Yeah, I refuse to believe that all of Clint's mugs aren't just like the they look completely normal, and when he sips it and tips it up, it's just a bullseye on the bottom. Uh, <laughs> no, wait a second. That's the insignia of bullseye. <laughs> The uh, um, Daredevil villain. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it would be pretty good to go up against Hawkeye or Kate Bishop. I, th I feel like Kate Bishop versus Bullseye would be quite a good uh, future fight. That was actually... I don't know what the thinking behind that was, but during a run of Marvel, when Norman Osborn was doing his Dark Avengers, he actually had... Bullseye done. Is that the equivalent of the Dark Universe? Did he? Uh, no, no, this, a no, it's no, pretty much just what um, Julia Louise Dreyfus is pulling together herself. Yeah. No, this mm. is this is the original Avengers are disgraced. Mm. Norman Osborn. Well, let's get some villains in their place because villains are are slightly better than disgraced heroes. Do they at one point go? Sorry, so that's Greg, it. Then we're some kind of Dark Avengers. 
<laughs> I don't know if they ever use the word literally, but like Norman gets up in a th- this is where the Iron Patriot uniform mm. in the comics actually comes from yeah. because obviously he can't dress up like the Green Goblin. He has to have something evoking of an established hero, Iron Man, which is why he dresses up Bullseye, who everyone technically knows is a villain, and says, no, 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 this is your new Hawkeye right here. See? He's got the weird helmet with the H on it and everything. It must be Hawkeye. (laughs) That costume doth not make the hero, (laughs) as John Walker fucking proved. Yeah. Uh, It's time for more Deep Thoughts. Greg, I'm aware that I was uh, chatting a whole lot more this time. I apologize for that. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> you apologize for talking too much. I apologize for talking too much. Sharon apologizes for saying insightful things. It's crazy. Meanwhile, you just keep on talking about everything. You know? <laughs> yeah, no apologies necessary. Yeah. It's time for more deep thoughts. So, Greg, 2022 is basically just going to be steam hot, isn't it? Oh, yeah. considering your rate of uh uh, production um you would uh do well to just to just go like yeah let's just write off 2022 and just put the big old steam (laughs) you know what i alex i know i've had this conversation with you in message form of so in 2022 i'm going to be dedicating a lot of time to writing a a thesis on a body of work that i'm very interested in and i'm also going to be doing my phd thesis (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very good um, uh, but i mean like luckily steam heart is not just big it's it's an ensemble piece so you've got a oh, load yeah. of different characters to write about all on parts of their own we say it not with dread but with or metro dread it's with anticipation <laughs> I, I think it's more of the fact that as mentioned before there's a lot of the new stuff that we want to talk more about but mm. we can't yet because we still have so much of the past to keep going through which is not a bad thing it's also mm-hmm. just you have to take into consideration that interrupting us every now and then as we do steamheart is going to be a news of the century covering the new I book that you're say, writing right I hope now I can give you a bunch of them yeah <laughs> so but the extra I've... episodes we champ at the bit for those just as much mm-hmm. as the retrospectives mm-hmm. yeah i in case it wasn't obvious uh that Castle of the Moon cover art was chef's kiss, and it did lead me to play a bunch of Castlevania music in the background uh, nice. for the rest of the day. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I hope you know that that's going to be what I put on. Like each time a new book has come out since we've started through the window, and I've been like posting my sort of immediate reactions. I try mm-hmm. to get suitable background music while i'm reading i it's going to be easy to know what that's going to be though i will try to find other series to mix in with it because uh, i think there's a good wealth of ambience for that that cover also just really gets my thoughts going in terms of like trying to decipher individual notes you were talking about penny's dress earlier with the glove and mm-hmm. back when I saw that for the first time... Oh, Greg, do you remember our speculation episode? Our speculation episode, yes. But I think we didn't... Did we see the cover of Stone Spring Mains at that time? Or was it just... Yeah, no, you had the... There was a speculation on... The cover of Stone Spring Maidens and the early shots of Panther Soul's characters. Right. Yes, that 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 was included. But not the right finished now. cover. But I'm, and I'm just thinking about how my original assertion of the mystery woman with green hair on there hmm. she had a, a weird gaia vibe mixed with witchblade except not cheesecake and <laughs> i love the fact that you mentioned witchblade is like just going just big flashback to 90s comics there i know exactly oh my god witchblade and it's it frustrates me that everyone here knows exactly what that is like actually if means... you want to google images aphrodite 9 that's ix oh yes wasn't that was that gen 13 or no it's its own comic yeah if you google images is... that that would be like drawings that uh harry would draw of penny being an action absolutely <laughs> like i was just thinking wow this, okay this... yeah this i can this, this is definitely 90s 
Yeah, this is. I mean, this was actually fairly late in the nineties, as I recall. I read one of these comics, and I was like, "This is just TNA with guns." <laughs> I'm going to go back to reading Danger Girl. there wasn't much to choose from in the 90s that wasn't like this frankly there was sandman and this yeah yeah it's time for more deep thoughts greg you absolutely have to edit in a bit of big mouth billy bass singing at this point (laughs) okay no problem i got you i'll never guess an editor on as a guest like backseat driving can't put a price on comedy First I was afraid, I was petrified Kept thinking I could never live without you by my side But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong And I grew strong, and I learned how to get along And now I'm back, back on the plaque Don't look surprised that I'm still singing Cause you know I have the knack Can you believe what you see, that you can't believe it's me did you think for just one second you'd be back to look at me? I will survive. I will survive. I will survive. Hey, hey. 